The title of today's sermon is Burned Up or Renewed. It's taken from 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 18. All right. We're finishing up 2 Peter today. And then next week we'll be having an introduction to the book of Daniel. So if you have time this week, along with all those other things that you have on your busy schedule, you can read Daniel a number of times. It's only 12 chapters, so it shouldn't take that long. So for those in my Sunday school class, include 1 Thessalonians and Daniel on your list, to-do list of things to do. But uh, I think you're going to find uh, that these books coalesce together, mesh quite nicely when understood with the proper um, hermeneutic, the historical, um, literal, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. All right, let's ask God to be our teacher this morning, to guide and direct us. Would you bow with me for prayer for just a moment? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, even though it might be warmer than we want, Lord, it's a beautiful day that you have made for us to to live and enjoy and move in this world and to know our Creator, and we're so thankful for it. Now, speak specifically to us through your your written word, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. Many of us here grew up in the 50s and 60s when Hollywood had a strange fascination with alien life forms and the end of the world scenarios. Some of us can even remember classic sci-fi films like War of the Worlds, which was an adaption of H.G. Wells' book. Many of us were shaken when we saw Stanley Kubrick's films, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, and then, of course, Failsafe, where the U.S. and the Soviets just barely avoid mutual assured destruction. But my personal favorite, being ex-Navy, was a film called On the Beach. It was about a crew of a U.S. naval atomic sub, which survives a nuclear exchange but, as you know, nuclear winter takes place across the, place across the face of the earth, and they are the only ones that survive. Well, we have a rich tradition from the past that has not stopped. It's gone on to the present day. And these new films have greater visual impact in our lives because of CGI. Watch the following. The End of the World.
Don't you guys wish you could turn up the surround sound? Now, there was one good thing about that. It started in San Francisco. (laughs) Most of us laugh at Hollywood, but a lot of people like to really think that the world is coming to an end soon. They just don't agree on the means. Let me share a few possibilities with you that were found in the film and are, of course, on the Internet. There are those who believe that an asteroid will soon strike the Earth and destroy all. Even legitimate astronomers have predicted that in 2028, a huge asteroid will come very close, possibly to hitting the Earth. They don't predict that it's going to strike, but if it did, the dust raised by the impact and the ash from the forest fires that would would come about would just cover the Earth with a cloud and the atmosphere would be clouded over, keeping sunlight from giving plants the needed sunlight to grow and worldwide food shortages would soon ensue and starvation would take place. Another that people are convinced about is a pandemic. And much like the scare we've had with Ebola and uh, Zika this past year, this virus would spread across the world, wiping out all of mankind. Of course, we had the example from the 1918s when the uh, influenza pandemic hit the world and a third of the population was infected and 50 million people died from it, more than died in all of World War I. Then there are those who believe that a solar storm upon the sun will affect the earth. The electronic magnetic radiation storms that occur on the surface of the Sun will shoot out bursts of solar winds and flares in our direction, raising radiation to a level that it will destroy the world. Uh, solar flares have damaged the Earth's surfaces before. In 1989, a solar flare knocked out all of the power grid in Quebec, Canada. There, then there are the greeners who believe that global warming, that is the greenhouse Greenhouse gases being released by mankind will build up in the atmosphere to such a point that the temperature of the Earth's surface changes. This effect will be catastrophic. The rise in temperature, again, will kill the crops, dry up the water sources, and kill all people through starvation and disease. But the most obvious scenario to people is that of a nuclear war. We saw that in the clip that I just showed you, which envisions nuclear holocaust. Warheads are sent by competing opposing nations. The explosions spread radiation across the face of the earth, contaminating the atmosphere, our food and water supplies, and eventually nuclear winter kills all people. Ah, but my favorite, my favorite scenario of all is the theory of a zombie invasion. (laughs) Now, you might laugh at that, But Bud Clark's alma mater, Michigan State University, offers a college class in how to survive the zombie apocalypse. Watch this. Until you're actually in a catastrophe, you don't know how you'd behave. You'd like to think you'd be the person who wouldn't leave anybody behind. Put others before yourself. 
But would you? You know, in times of catastrophe, some people find their humanity, but others, they lose theirs. By the way, the man in the video, that was Dave Bruns when he didn't get his cup of coffee on Sunday morning. <laughs> now, these are interesting theories and all of that, but they're all wrong. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we are told just how the world will end. There it says in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then a little bit later, for emphasis, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and all the elements will melt with intense heat. This description of the end of the world has led many Bible scholars and students to theorize that the Lord will use atomic weapons to destroy our planet. Not surprisingly, they thought this during the Cold War when we were in a fierce competition with the Soviets to build up our atomic stockpile. But the truth is, the truth is God doesn't need man's help in accomplishing his plans and his purposes. The Lord can destroy the world all on his own if he wants. All he has to do is to rearrange a few of the basic elements that are found on planet Earth, and soon it would all be over. Look at this experiment that was uh, done that uses just some of the basic gases found in our atmosphere. We're in the demo lab with Lonnie to actually see those three balloons. So here's a balloon filled with only hydrogen, a second balloon filled with only oxygen, and a third balloon filled with a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen. Lonnie could ignite the balloons with his long torch, and we can observe the intensity of the explosions. First, Lonnie will ignite the hydrogen-only balloon. You can see an explosion, but a relatively mild explosion as the hydrogen reacts with oxygen in the atmosphere. Here's the oxygen-only balloon. Well, that balloon more or less just popped. No real explosion there. Now, the hydrogen-oxygen balloon. That's a very strong concussive explosion. Lonnie, you always play with fire like that? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> there you go. Here's the point. The Lord has reserved within the earth itself all that he needs to destroy it. All of the basic elements of our destruction are present in our heavens and earth today. The atmosphere, as we know, is a storehouse of hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, methane, sodium, uranium, and a host of other elements that, if mixed in the proper proportions, would light up this terrestrial ball like... 
a torch. So, someone once asked me, do I believe in global warming? (laughs) Heck yeah, of course, I said. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Pretty clear, isn't it? You can't get much warmer than that. Listen now. Peter wrote this portion of scripture to motivate us to live for Jesus Christ. That's the point. The second coming is to make men holy, not afraid. I think it's a real shame that this doctrine is used by many in the church today to divide it. At times, even the salvation of some believers are questioned by the way that they view end times. In many churches, the second coming is nothing more than a way to sensationalize God, to bring people into their camp because they're afraid. To others, like us at Lacey Chapel, we believe in the rapture and the second coming of Christ because it gives us a hope for the future. It gives us hope for the present. So the second coming is a doctrine that is to motivate us to live our lives today holy and to glorify our God. Amen. Let's examine this text. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, which can be found on page 1217 of the Pew Bible in front of you. 1217. And 17. There Peter begins by saying, we pick up in the text where we left off last week, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. The topic is clear. The topic is the day of the Lord. Now, this term has been used throughout the scriptures to describe the events that take place at the end of times. The day of the Lord begins with, in my view, the rapture of the church and culminates with the eternal state. It's interesting that the Greek sentence here, as it is written by Peter, begins with, not but, the day of the Lord, it begins with the words, will come. The point of Peter putting those words in the emphatic position is to emphasize the fact that Jesus is coming. He will come. He will come on that day, and we will call that the day of judgment in which he will settle all the injustices that we've experienced in this world and all the personal accounts of sin against God. Now, I could cite hundreds of verses in both Testaments that speak of the day of the Lord. It's going to suffice, though, I think, just to mention a few. I'm going to begin in the uh, best-known scenario here of Daniel 9, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks or maybe months. Um, And then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Daniel wrote in chapter 9, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring, to, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to set up, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That would be the new temple. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 72 weeks, total of 69, 
It will be built again with the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He dies in Jerusalem. And having nothing, and the people of the prince who is left will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the Antichrist. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's the tribulation. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice, grain offering. And on the wings of abomination will come one who will make desolate, even until a complete discretion Destruction, one that is decreed in pouring out on the one who makes desolate the day of the Lord. Then Paul speaks of this in First Thessalonians, saying this, For as you yourselves know full, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And then in Second Thessalonians he says, Do not be shaken nor disturbed by a spirit or a message from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not yet come, unless the apostasy come first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and he takes his seat in this temple of God, displaying himself to be God. So, Throughout scripture, we read of the day of the Lord, of the second coming of Jesus Christ. How are we supposed to understand this day of the Lord in the context of the rest of scripture? Well, there are three basic ways to understand it. First, there is premillennialism, which is what we here at Lacey Chapel believe in. We believe that it is a two-staged event. First, The Lord Jesus comes in the air for his church, which is called the rapture, and he removes us to be in the Father's presence for the seven years of tribulation. And then he returns in his second coming. That is the time in which God works in particular with the nation of Israel to cause them to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And then we have the millennial reign. Secondly, there is post-millennialism, which teaches that the kingdom of God is now, that we are living in his kingdom, and that's being extended through the teaching, preaching, evangelism, missions of the church. The world is getting better. Don't you think? The world ultimately, by post-millennialists believe, will be completely Christianized. And following this long, unstated period of time, peace and prosperity will ensue, and that will be the end of the millennium, and Christ will return. Thirdly, there is amillennialism, which teaches between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ, a continuous growth of both good and evil occurs in the world. Much like postmillennialism, the kingdom of God is now present in the world in the hearts of believers, and through the word of God, the church is growing, is growing and getting bigger, and anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. So there are three ways that men interpret the scriptures. But I ask you, the question is, what does the Bible teach and not what men, what do men say? So the first thing that we read here in the Bible from Peter is that the second coming will be like a thief breaking into your house at night. This is, of course, a figure of speech called a simile. It's a comparison. It's comparing the actions of a thief breaking into your house unknown in the middle of the night, undark, un- dark and unexpectedly. This is so common a theme that it's used by many of the writers of Scripture, including the Lord Jesus and John, Paul, and Ringo, 
And Matthew, oh, you are listening. Good. Jesus warns believers to be on the alert in the book of Matthew, for you do not know when and on which day your Lord is coming. Be sure that uh, be sure of this, the thief is going to break into your house. There it is. Then the Apostle Paul also emphasizes the imminence of the return of Christ when he states, For you yourselves know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And John the Revelator says much the same thing in his book when he urges believers to remember he will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour he comes. So we see that this is quite common, and Peter restates it as well, that the heavens will pass away and the earth and the elements will be destroyed at a time that's like the thief coming into your house. The point is clear. Jesus will come when least expected, and people should be ready for his return because all hell is going to break loose. At the precise moment that the heavens begin to pass away and a roar and the elements will be destroyed and the earth and its works will be bound up, it will be too late. Well, when that happens, the end of the earth scenario, it will be like seeing a sight and sound show has never been seen before. No rock concert is going to come near what, will, what it will be like at the end of time. For there, We'll start with a great roar, as we saw in the video. The Greek word that's used here is rosanidon, and it's used in secular lit- literature to describe a bird's wings beating in the air, the sound of a spear flying through the air, or the sound of flames that are crackling in, the, in a huge forest fire that's roaring. So the consummation of the earth will be accompanied by this terribly loud sound and also an intense heat, as the text tells us. We read it would be so hot that the elements will go through some kind of physical change. Now, the Greek word that's used here for elements is stoichia, which was used in ancient times to refer to the basic features or elements on the planet Earth. When you think of those, you know that it's fire, water, earth, and air. The ancients never would have had in mind some kind of an atomic reaction. They didn't know of atoms. So Peter says, he tells us here that the elements will melt meaning they will change their appearance under this intense heat. And he says that the earth and its works, the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, the Greek word that's used here for intense heat and burned up is a, is a secular word that, was used, word that was used in secular literature to describe a person with a very high fever. However... There's a, there's a textual issue here, as I talked about in my Sunday school class this morning. There's a very serious textual problem. The New American Standard, which I prefer as a Bible because of its literalness, and many other English translations re- rely on the Greek text, the stream that comes to us today, that has the word in it, katakaskaste, and that word is correctly translated in the New American Standard as burned up. However... However, that word does not have the best textual evidence to support it. It's not the reading that's found in the earliest and many of the best manuscripts. The Greek word that appears in those manuscripts is the Greek word herodestethe. 
Hurraesthete. Now that word does not mean burned up. Rather, it is translated as found, laid bare, disclosed, or exposed. It has that range of meaning. Now some English translations do rely on that better Greek text, at least in this case, and they render it that the earth and its works will be disclosed or exposed. So the idea could be here, if we follow the better translation, in my opinion, that the works on the earth will be judged and exposed. And those works, of course, are done by men. And they will be judged, exposed at the judgment seat of Christ, or the white throne judgment, I should say. As you know, that's the time when the Lord Jesus judges the works and deeds of lost men. All of the deeds of the lost will be brought to light and judged and burned up. Obviously, planet Earth has no works to judge. Only men who do deeds and works can be evaluated. So this makes much more sense in context as well. Jesus sits in judgment of the works of men, and there is a great noise and intense heat as God destroys their works and the works of the done on earth. Bear in mind that this is the only place in all of Scripture that the destruction of the earth is said to be by fire. The only place. Now, some handle snakes in church because it's found in one place in Scripture. Mark chapter 16. We're not supposed to build doctrines on single location of teachings in the Bible. It should take two or more to make it a doctrine. So here is the only place in Scripture that it says the world will be destroyed by fire, if you want to take its literal statement here in the NASV. So some have wrongly concluded that Peter misunderstands doctrine because he doesn't mention here, for example, the millennial kingdom. He kind of just skips over that. Maybe he didn't believe in it, they have postulated. But I say to that, a person's failure to mention something is not a validation that they don't believe in it. So Peter, writing about this climactic event, the day of the Lord, and his intent to describe what happens at the end, doesn't need to mention the millennial kingdom. Now, as an aside, as an aside, let me say this. The final melting of the elements reminds me of the state of the earth as it once was. If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and you look between verses 1 and 3, we find the state of the earth in Genesis 1-2 is this. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the world. If you go on, then God creates light and moon, sun, and stars. So it sounds a lot like that the earth will be as this, Genesis 1-2, after the judgment. It will follow that the Lord will then hang the sun and the stars and moon in place. This fits nicely with what Peter is saying in this text. So will the Lord burn up 
the universe completely? Will everything disappear and be annihilated, just gone, vaporized? Or will the earth simply undergo a renewal? Well, I personally believe that uh, the earth will be renewed. A renewal of creation will take place here. I conclude this for a number of reasons. And I hope you don't tune me out here, but here are the reasons. And however you choose to understand this text is fine with me. I'm okay with it. Either way, I'm just saying this is the, the, the one that I prefer. The reasons for it are, are thus. First of all, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4, listen carefully, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Can't have it both ways, ladies and gentlemen. Either the writer of Ecclesiastes is wrong or Peter is right. You see the problem, don't you? The earth will remain forever. The psalmist tells us much the same thing when he says that the Lord renews the face of the earth. So we have the psalmist saying straight out that in some future time, the earth is going to be renewed. That fits nicely with the idea that the Lord will again renew and reshape the earth, not completely destroy it. But the best reason, I believe, that the earth will be renewed rather than completely annihilated and replaced is this. When you and I have trusted in Christ as believers, the believer's body is not destroyed, is it? But it is renewed. The old has passed away and the new comes. We are new creatures in Christ, but the old body's still there, isn't it? It's going to be raised again, isn't it, at the end of time? Paul confirms this for us in Philippians chapter 3, saying, He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power which he will bring everything under his control. Lastly, I believe that, Paul, that Peter is speaking here of renewal rather than annihilation of the earth is because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Listen now. Paul writes, the creation, that's more than just the earth, that's all of it God created. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. The Creation is groaning for redemption, says another translation. That makes it totally illogical that it will be destroyed, annihilated, vaporized, done away with. Why would the earth groan for redemption if it's going to be destroyed? Only if it's going to be renewed would it pine for the coming of the Lord. So what's the point of knowing all this? What's the point of this? And see, people get so lost in prophetic utterances and the apocalyptic that they miss the point. I, I don't want you to miss my point here. Most people, when they read this, miss the point that Peter wrote for, wrote it for. Why did Peter write it? He wrote it as a motivation for us to live an exemplary life. When? Here and now. As we await the Lord's calling of his bride to join him in the air, we are to live holy and godly. Look at verse 12. 
That's why we're saved from the tribulation. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? Notice this verse begins with the word since, which implies, indicates a result. Peter says the result of you knowing this truth that God is going to renew the earth and all that is on it, you should change your behavior. That's what he means by these things. These things points to the word destroyed. What is that? The Greek word for destroyed is luo, L-U-O, which can mean also to tear down or to break in pieces. The implication here is that the earth, like a building, will be taken apart and will be renewed. Perhaps the key to understanding this whole text is just right, found right in our text. Look back with me at verse 7 in this very same chapter. And we see that the judgment of God is coming upon who? Ungodly men. It is ungodly men that will be destroyed. And it will be the earth that is renewed. Looking again at the text. Remembering this is apocalyptic literature meant to motivate us to live holy lives. Again, the question is, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question that you and I need to bring to our hearts and minds when we read this text. Not how is God going to destroy the planet Earth, but what kind of people ought we be? Well, that's convicting, isn't it? I'd rather not think about that. I'd rather watch the end of the Earth scenarios on the Internet. That's a lot more fun than thinking about, whoa, am I living holy? Am I living godly? Am I pleasing him? The truth is, each of us needs to change. To be willing to see the old life torn down, destroyed, and replaced with the new life. The new man. So what does this text say about the person who's only interested in apocalyptic literature? Obsessed with the comings of Christ. The morbid curiosity about revelation. Well, to me, it says, we're not supposed to be about then. We're supposed to be about now. We're supposed to live in light of a coming day. Everything okay back there? Okay. The primary purpose of prophetic literature is not to satisfy our curiosity about the end. It's to motivate believers to live changed lives. Rather than working for things that will ultimately be destroyed on planet Earth, we should work for that which will last into eternity. That's why the scoffers of Peter's day, those who were false teachers, questioned the coming of the Lord. They said, in fact, that to hold such a doctrine was evil. They refused to change their minds and be introspective about their own lives and whether or not they were living holy and godly lives. But that's what we're told to do. In light of this truth, you and I are to live holy and godly in this present world. Peter's interest is in the present day implications of the coming truth. His point is that people of the book should honor the Lord in their lives by living in light of what is to come. 
Notice his repetition of this same truth in verse 12. He underscores, it highlights. You know, people always tell me, you repeat yourself too much. Well, the Bible does it. Don't blame me. The scriptures repeat itself. Look at here, verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So it must be important. It's repeated. This event on the prophetic calendar is what should motivate us to live differently. Believers in every age, not just Peter's, live differently because of this truth of the coming. Looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. That's really an interesting statement, isn't it? We're to be looking for his coming. We're to be anticipating his coming. We're to look past the millennial kingdom in and of itself and look towards the end of time as God changes us when he glorifies us. And in fact, if we live with that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude, we can hasten his coming. We can actually hasten his coming, says the text. Now, this has confused many, including myself. I'm not really sure what this means. I know Paul said in one of his epistles that believers are to love his appearing. Now, some people dread his appearing. They're not looking forward to it. They don't want it to come because they're not living lives that honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, the lost dread the day of his coming because it will be the day of their judgment. But you and I are to live holy and godly so that we hasten his coming. How can we do that? The only way I think that we can do that is by being evangelists. Supporting missions. So the idea here, I think, it is through evangelism and missions that we can hurry the coming of the Lord because people are getting saved. And when the church is complete, the Lord will come. Paul writes about this again, as Paul does always. In the book of Corinthians chapter 15, he writes, Then comes the end. When he, that is Jesus Christ, hands the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule, authority, and power. Jesus Christ, when his millennial kingdom is over and the world is recreated, hands it over to his Father. Did you know that? He turns it all back over to Dad. All rule and authority and power are abolished and they're in the hands of our Heavenly Father. So, Peter restates this when he says that the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, some ask, should we take these statements literally or should we take them uh, as apocalyptic exaggerations? Well, if you believe the writings of Isaiah and many others in the Old Testament, they are literal. Listen to the words that Isaiah spoke to Jewish believers in 700 B.C. He said, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and all the inhabitants will die like like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Wane, I should say. Wane. Now, I could read other texts like this again all morning. All of these verses say much the same thing, that the earth, the physical ball on which we live, will undergo some kind of extreme change, and then they will be restored to their former glory 
and splendor. God is going to recreate the Garden of Eden on this earth when the Lord Jesus hands over the millennial kingdom to his Father. Someone once asked Paul about this, and he answered them saying this in chapter 15 of the same book. How are the dead raised? And what kind of body will they have? Paul, in his diplomatic way, said, You fool! (laughs) You fool! I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Not destroyed, not annihilated, but changed. This is Paul's way of comforting believers in the first century. Don't be foolish about what you think is going to happen in the, at the end of time. You will be changed, but you will be yourself. There's an awesome promise, one that we should cling to, found here in verse 13, which, Paul, in which Peter says, according to his promise, we are looking, what? Forward. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. We're supposed to be looking for this. Are you looking for it? Are you looking for a new heaven and a new earth? That's what the promise is here. His promise is he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and only the righteous will exist there. The Lord spoke of this again to Isaiah in chapters 65 and 66. And I've taken out two verses here I'm going to share with you where Isaiah quotes the Lord, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make endure before me, so your name will endure. Here's where we see the very same nomenclature found in Peter is used concerning a new heaven and a new earth. This is all the way back in 9th century BC. And 900 to 1,000 years later, John the Revelator sees the exact same thing when he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. It's stated again and again and again in Scripture that the heavens will be recreated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. I know that is true because the Greek word that's used here is kanos for new. The word refers to a renewal of the old. Just think about it. There will be a new Jerusalem with new creatures in it, you and me, right? On a new heaven and a new earth, all recreated. Why are they recreated? Why are they recreated? Have you thought about that question? Well, we learn here right in this verse. A new heaven and a new earth are a place in which righteousness dwells. Unlike the old heavens and the old earth that have been plagued with sin ever since the fall of Adam, the new heavens and the new earth will be completely righteous where we will feel at home in our new bodies. I believe verse 14 is the key to understanding all of this when it says this. Peter concludes, Therefore, he concludes, Therefore, beloved, he's not talking to false teachers anymore. He's talking to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Since you look for these things, that's the first 
caveat, you must be looking for these things. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Remember he asked the question earlier, what kind of people we should be? The answer is given right here. Spotless and blameless, enjoying peace in him. Holy, godly people. How does that come about? How does that come about? Well, I put my head on my pillow at home and I put my Bible underneath it and all of a sudden I'm spotless and blameless, right? By osmosis, all of the scriptures just come through my pillow and into my head and I walk in complete harmony and righteousness with my God. Right? Sorry. Did you do your Sunday school work this morning? Hmm? Are you being diligent? Are you meeting with the Lord on a daily basis in prayer and study? Are you being diligent? Are you memorizing his holy word and planting it in your heart so that you can recall it at any moment? Are you being diligent? Be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Are you involved in some kind of a heinous sin that's secret that only you know about? Are you at war with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Or those at work? Make every effort. That's the Greek words, spanda acetate, which means to be diligent in the pursuit of a Holy, exemplary life. We are to make every effort, expend all of your energy on becoming Christ-like, spotless, blameless, without blemish. Remember, that's what the Jews brought to the temple to worship God, a spotless animal. Paul said to Timothy, keep the commandments without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, said much the same thing when he said, live a pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. When was the last time you visited an orphan or a widow? Made a hospital visit. Oh, the pastor will do that. That's not what the text says, does it? You want peace with God? Then you better start being diligent about these things or you will lose that peace. Listen, now the practical result of the implantation of the divine nature that Peter spoke about in chapter 1 way back a couple months ago is peace. We all want peace in our lives, don't we? I don't know about you, but that's what I want. So as we look forward to the culmination of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, and we diligently work in our lives, we can experience the peace of God. Now, I've referred to Paul numerous times throughout this message because he and Peter support one another completely, totally. Look with me at verse 15 where Peter explains the delay of Christ's coming the exact same way that Paul does. He says, with regard to the patience of our Lord, that's the delay in his coming, concerning salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, 
according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. Paul says the exact same thing as I'm saying. Don't worry about that spat that Paul and I had back in the book of Galatians, remember? Paul poked his finger into Peter's proverbial chest and said, What is your problem, Peter? Salvation is not by works. Why are you going back to the Jewish covenants and commandments? It's by grace alone. Well, guess what? They made up. They kissed. Peter didn't run off to another church and sulk. He didn't run off to another pastor that will tell him what he wants to hear. Like a baby. What do you see in churches today? Babies. They don't want to be... Ah, I'm off topic here. But the scoffer said that Peter was wrong. The scoffer said that Paul was wrong. There is no second coming. They just wanted to use people to get what they wanted. Basically money, their support, their financial support. They wanted fame. They wanted to be known. So they ripped apart the apostles of the day. Does it sound like today? Does it sound like what people are doing to the scriptures today? People of faith today? You believe in the Bible? What happens to you? You get put through the mill, don't you? But here, Peter says, I'm in total agreement with Brother Paul. We think the exact same thing because it's the truth of God. Look with me at verse 6. 16. In all his letters, Paul speaks in them of these things. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and myriad of other small references in his letter. Paul speaks of these same things. Some are hard to understand. Do you ever have trouble understanding Pauline letters? Peter says, I do. Some of these things are hard to understand, especially for the untaught and the unstable who will distort his teaching as they do the rest of the Bible, the scriptures, and thus bring upon themselves their own destruction. Peter makes three important observations in this text. In verse 16, first observation is that the teaching of Paul isn't easy to understand. You've got to work at it. I love going to Bible studies where people read the Bible once and they think they've mastered it. They know the depth and the breadth of Scripture because they read it once. Really? Pauline letters trouble many people. They're difficult to understand. You've got to have a clear understanding of the hermeneutics. Some get Paul wrong, though, because they just don't want to understand it. It doesn't fit with their agenda. There are those who teach that just don't know any better. Remember Apollos? He was teaching an aberrant doctrine about baptism, and he had to be corrected by Aquila and Priscilla. And then he fell into unity with the rest of the teaching of the apostles. However, there are people who choose to misrepresent or, as it says in the scripture, twist the truth for their own purposes. It seems that they were not getting what Paul had taught about the second coming, those things that he had penned, for example, in First and Second Thessalonians, and they were twisting and turning it. So we have two kinds of people spoken of here, the untaught, those who don't know any better, and the unstable, those who twist the words of the Bible. 
There are lots of those around, aren't there? There are false teachers everywhere. However, the twisting of Scripture is surely to bring their end. The unstable distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. Whenever the Bible speaks of the Scriptures, it's usually been a reference to the Old Testament. This is one of the rare occasions here where the Scriptures refer to the teaching of the New Testament. Here... Peter is saying Paul's letters are on the same level and have the same authority as the Old Testament has. That's wonderful to know, isn't it? Notice the warning that Peter gives, however, in verse 17. You, therefore, beloved. Again, he uses the term beloved. Knowing this beforehand. Be on guard. Stand watch. Have a sentry out there. Be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men who fall from, their, from your own steadfastness. Even believers can get carried away in following the deceivers that are all around us. Listen now, I've often been asked this question. Some of you might find this interesting and controversial. I hope so. I've always been asked, I've often been asked this question, how can a blood-washed, sanctified, born-again, legitimate believer in Jesus Christ cast a vote for a Democrat? Well, I, I said, I don't, I don't know. How could, how could any person vote for someone who kills babies? who kills old people, who believes anybody can have sex anytime, anywhere they want it. They believe that men and women don't have the same gender, and they can think up their own gender, they can smoke dope. Worst of all, these people believe that followers of Jesus Christ are the greatest criminals ever. They blame us for global warming, ruining the environment, buying guns and killing people for no good reason, starting wars against people of color. My favorite quote is from the super liberal, super Democrat Bruce Springsteen, who once sang in his song that all people know, born in the USA, I got a little hometown jam and they put a rifle in my hand, sent me off to Vietnam to go and kill the yellow man. I'll tell you this, I didn't go to Vietnam to kill the yellow man, I went there to defend democracy. I went there to keep them from having to suffer under communism as they have for the past 50 years since we left that God-forsaken place. How could anyone vote for a Democrat? I don't know. Maybe they've lost touch with reality. Maybe they're insane. Maybe they're just ignorant and stupid. But then as Peter says here in the text, you already know this. Yes, we do, but we don't like to think about it. The word that's used here in the Greek text is prognosko, which from which we get our English word prognosis. It's a medical term that was used to describe the patient's condition, and it's supposed to prepare us to take the medicine to get us better. Okay? That's what... He's using here in verse 16, you knowing this beforehand, so be on guard. Listen, you know all this stuff about the election coming up. I don't need to tell you. Be prepared. Be on guard. Who your vote's for? You know what they believe? 
Be on your guard. That's a military term used to describe the personal responsibility of the individual that's standing at his post. He must take responsibility for his own spiritual health. I had a church way long ago where one of the deacons came to me and told me he was voting for a certain Democrat for president. And I said, well, why? Why are you voting for him? Well, he's going to give my kids free college tuition. Good reason. Excellent. You must watch your intake if you are going to be holy and Christ-like in this world. Otherwise, you might, as Peter says here, fall from your steadfastness. That's another one of those Greek words. Okay? I don't throw around the word steadfastness much, do you? Honey, I'm going to come home and I'm going to be steadfast. Do you say that? No. So it's a word that we really don't understand. The Greek term here, stegamo, which implies a firm position or a secure position. Believers are to maintain a secure and firm position to avoid instability in their spiritual lives. Are you in a secure and stable position in your walk with Christ? Are you grounded in the truth? Are you literally... Moments away from falling from grace. Well, many experience the false teacher's comments and teaching, and they like it, and they fall from their steadfastness. That's what Peter is saying here. But he warns, if you are to be secure and stable, and you might be saying, thank God he's come to the end of the text here. (laughs) Praise the Lord. See, See, we got you to pray, didn't we? We got you to praise and worship the Lord. Thank God, Lord, you're, he's, he's coming to a conclusion here. Verse 18, you will grow in no longer the grack. Notice, it's no longer the grack. Do you see what I'm saying? For those, the E is back in place. We've had a renewal. We didn't annihilate it. We just sanded it and put on new gold stuff. You will grow in the grace and knowledge, notice what comes first, of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. That is the eternal state being spoken of there. Peter admonishes his readers with the, constra- with the contrastive, that's it, but don't Fall from your steadfast position, but, but, I have a big but, grow. Are you growing? Are you moving forward? In grace and knowledge. What is grace? Grace is the experiential walk of the believer in this life with Jesus Christ. Knowledge is knowing the truth that will set you free to live that life of grace. Are you growing in grace? Knowledge here is objective knowledge, the truth of Scripture. Grace is the subject of the experience of walking in that knowledge. It's not based on emotions. It's based on the knowledge of Christ. It's not based on your experience religiously, but it's based on the knowledge of the Bible. The verb here, grow, by the way, is an imperative in the first, excuse me, in the present tense, which means It could be understood as continually growing in grace and knowledge. 
The Holy Spirit causes us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to experience the peace that God offers. And he closes this whole book out with one word. Amen. As you know what that means, so be it. How can we apply this text to our life? Well, let me count the ways. First of all, we should be living this life in light of his coming. That means we should be evangelists in our neighborhood. Dave, you just found a whole bunch of people to evangelize over there on Shirley Street, didn't you? What a privilege you have, my friend. I don't have too many people to evangelize over here anymore. The corner White House, there's nobody there. But you have all those neighbors that you can drive crazy with the gospel. You are so lucky. You can hasten the coming of the Lord. Amen? Secondly, in light of his coming, we should live holy and godly. Take account. Are you living a holy, godly life? Are you a phony? Are you diligently living that life for Christ? Thirdly, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Oh, Democrats said that. We are already forgiven. We don't have anything to worry about. We can look forward to the coming of the Lord and the renewal of planet Earth because we'll be right there with him on the new heavens and the new earth. Then we can truly experience peace in the Garden of Eden once again where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the sword is beat into plowshares. You see how the change happens there? And we can live and dwell in righteousness. No more people getting their heads chopped off. No more people running around with automatic weapons and shooting people innocently in malls or, or wherever. No more car accidents. No more loved ones dying of cancer. No more going to the ball game and getting peppered with the F word by people all around you. We will dwell and live in righteousness. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. I can't wait. Now, the rapture is just a step in that direction. But it's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will bring it all to fruition. That is my hope. Would you pray with me? (coughs) Father, thank you for this book. Just three chapters. My goodness, filled with so much truth. Father, help us to understand it. Let it motivate us. Motivation. Motivation, Lord, to live a godly life. I don't want to do that, Lord. I want to sin, do all sorts of fun stuff, according to the world. But your book tells me they have a privilege of being called to live. A spotless life, like my Savior. Help me, Lord, to do that with every effort. All of my energy, help each and every one of us, Lord, to become more like Jesus Christ, we pray, as we look forward to his return. Amen.